Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week we're going to be talking about whether there is a European strategic culture or just a strategic cacophony. To help us make sense of this big question, we have an all-star cast, um, starting with Nick Whitney, who is a senior policy fellow at ECFR, the first head of Europe's defence agency, and the author a few years ago of a paper on Europe's strategic cacophony, which looked at all of the different national security strategies which had come out of ministries of defence and foreign affairs across our continent. Also uh, talking to me now is Ulrike Franke, who is a policy fellow at ECFR, who has just been writing a lot about the different generational views in Germany on strategic culture and has also been working uh, on some of these different uh, reviews and and studying them. uh, And just come back from Paris, where she's had discussions about the French European Intervention Initiative. And... To complete the all-star panel, we have Jeremy Shapiro, back to the podcast, research director at ECFR, and somebody who has laboured on various different strategic documents in his past life as an official in the State Department, and has made fun of these different things as a think tanker in different (laughs) institutions. It's a living. (laughs) We're talking about this topic now because the French President Emmanuel Macron has announced that he wants to create a European intervention initiative, which has variously been described as an Erasmus for soldiers uh, and a factory of uh, European strategic culture. The idea behind this is that he wants to get European uh, diplomats and soldiers and military planners to work together so that they can build a culture through action, which is a different way of thinking about a strategic culture from the way that we've learned about to do it in recent years, which has been more about paper than about action. We had the first European security strategy, which was published in uh, 2003 after the uh, painful divisions which Europeans encountered during the Iraq war. And uh, that was recently uh, renovated with the European Global Strategy in 2016. And since then, there's been an outpouring of different security strategies. A French uh, strategic uh, review, a Weisbuch in Germany in 2016, a Spanish national security strategy. And most recently, in the last few weeks, we've seen one from the, the Netherlands and a national security capability review published in the UK. So... Maybe before we look at whether the best way to build strategies is through common action or through papers, we can start by looking at some of these documents and to see how much they are singing from the the same hymn sheet. Nick, do you want to go first? You're maybe the the longest standing student of of different (laughs) strategies. And you <laughs> coined this term, the European strategic cacophony, after you'd laboured your way through uh, almost, I think, 27 different countries' expressions of what their security strategies were. Well, yes, thank you, Mark. Um, that was in 2013, I think, a, long, a piece of work I did with uh, Libya de France. Um, and 
we were looking at it because it was 10 years on from the first European um, security strategy in 2003. We wanted to see to what extent um, that still held true. And of course it didn't because the world had changed enormously between 2003 and 2013. We had the economic crisis, we'd had the appearance of resurgent Russia, we'd had the Arab Spring blossoming and then turning into chaos on our doorsteps. And so the, um, the, the original intellectual foundations of the European Defence Project, if I can put it that way, which, were, which was the security strategy of 2003, the idea that Europe could complement NATO by going in for crisis management and early and, if necessary, robust intervention to make sure that the area around Europe would behave itself... Um, by 2013, that was no one believed in it anymore. Um, it was uh, an infinitely more complex world, a world in which the whole uh, European enthusiasm for expeditionary operations had evaporated with Iraq and Afghanistan as um, uh, helping that process. So it was um, we duly looked around at these different uh, at these different security strategies and decided that. Um, you know, they, they had no common theme, and a lot of them weren't actually, it seemed to us, actually fit for purpose, because the whole point of doing one of these documents, I think, is to lay out a rationale of what you're trying to do with the money you spend on defence and security, and then link it to your forward plans. And if you don't use your analysis to influence the way you're planning to spend your money in future or if you don't actually talk about the way you're planning to spend your money in future, there's not much point in talking about, you know, you can write a nice essay on the strategic environment, but it fails as a, as a prescriptive or useful document. Anyway, we, did, we identified cacophony in 2013. We said it would be jolly good if Europe revisited its security strategy, uh, adding our voice to that of many others. And um, in due course, we got the European um, security strategy of 2016, which I think was... a was a good piece of work in a, inevitably a high-level sort of way, with the main theme running through it, I think, the most uh, interesting, innovative idea in it being strategic autonomy, which, uh, remember, this was the time when candidate Trump was rising in the polls. Obama had gone through his business of um, uh, the uh, pivot away from Europe towards Asia, and it did seem to make sense that without in any way seeking to preempt this this development, that Europe should be thinking a little bit more about what it might take to stand a bit more on its own feet in defence and security in case you found America disengaging over the decades to come. Um, and that's the, a lot of the spirit of the European um, new European security strategy, which um, infuses, I think, the French, uh, recent French offering, but um, not actually any of the others. So none of the others. So Ulrike, you've been reading uh, all these other doctrines, the, uh, the, the German White Paper, the, the British uh, National Security Review, the Dutch um, and the Spanish ones. Can you not see any strategic autonomy in any of them? Are there any common threads or are there big divergences between them? I mean, of course, there are some common threads, um, um, especially when it comes to in the strategic environment in general. They all identify more or less the same the same threats, being you know from from Russia to terrorism. Of course, there are different focuses in the different papers, but 
Um, it would be it, it would be bizarre if they didn't agree on a few things. Um, on the strategic autonomy bit, though, I mean, the one paper where this came up most was, unsurprisingly, the French Strategic Review from 2017. I mean, it's not their white paper. Their white paper was... was uh, from uh, uh, four years earlier. But this strategic review uh, mentions strategic autonomy a lot. The interesting bit, though, is that they don't really mean strategic autonomy for Europe, mainly strategic autonomy for France, in a way. I mean, they talk about French forces should be capable of autonomous action. They are really very much focused on France being able to do things. Um, so it's strategic autonomy, autonomy plus European defense, really. Um, and, and I think the European Intervention Initiative, to some extent, is, an, is, is a good example of that, because it's a, it's a French initiative that is supposed to be headed from Paris, based in Paris, um, but at the same time, it is European insofar as France is looking for, for partners in things that it wants to do. But they, in France, when you talk to them about it, they say it's an answer to the German European, uh, the German Framework Nations Initiative, which is um, the, their kind of model. So um, they're obviously modelling themselves on the perfect German multilateral effort <laughs> in French. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the French white paper is, is, uh, came out in 2016, right? So I read this a, a little while ago. And I, I thought that was really interesting in a way, it came out at exactly the wrong moment. So Germany doesn't do these kind of papers often. It generally doesn't like to write things down. So the last German white paper, the one before that, was from 2006. So this was one 10 years after. And the problem is it came out in July 2016. So it was written before the Brexit referendum, and no one thought Brexit would happen. It came out after that. It was written before Trump, and it was written before Emmanuel Macron's um, uh, election. And all of that can be seen in this paper to some extent, insofar as the focus of the paper is more on NATO than European defense. I mean, they're not disregarding it. It's, it's, it's a paper of 143 pages, so of course you have some European defense in there. But it is quite clear that, that, that the focus is more NATO than Europe, and I think that would have changed today quite, quite dramatically. Um, Actually, oh, yeah. that, well, I mean, that's in a way the, the point which Nick was raising. What was interesting is how little, you know, I think in all of the preambles of these papers, it says the Americans are disengaging, there's a different strategic environment, there's Trump. But then if you look at the, the Dutch Strategic Defence Review, which came out, you know, literally a few days ago, um, the three main tasks of protection of Dutch and NATO territory, the promotion of the international legal order and support of civil authorities within the Netherlands. I mean, it's obviously true that maybe if Trump was, was not there, they'd be talking less about the promotion of an international legal order. Um, but, but there is still an assumption that, that NATO is there. And the, and the, U, the UK one um, launches this new fusion doctrine, which apparently is the latest version of, of, of the comprehensive approach, uh, which they call it in the European Global Strategy, or joined out government, as we used to call it in the 1990s. Um, but um, uh, also doesn't seem to be Im implying kind of radical attempts to, to make up for an America that um, is no longer uh, as there as it, as it should be. Or do you disagree? <laughs> no, I was, I was actually I was still thinking about the Dutch one because, um, interestingly enough, they also have a line about um, that they are now compelling demands to meet NATO targets. So they also very much, much underline that even though, and this I think is something that is actually the case in most of these papers, they still don't want to spend as much money on it as NATO, NATO would like them to do. So the, the Dutch speak about 
compelling demands to meet NATO targets, but then say they're not going to rise the defense budget above 1.3% until 2021, uh, the Germans are pretty much the same. So in a way, that could be a common, uh, common uh, denominator of a few of them. Although I think France um, is, is stepping up um, its, its defense spending uh, a bit. I, mean, I think one of the interesting developments is that, uh, and I have some evidence for this, which I could mention boringly if need be, but anyway, let me just get the general point out there, is that I, since um, President Trump came in and uh, described NATO as obsolete and was generally disobliging, most European capitals have actually been falling over themselves to try to re-persuade themselves that there is no worry about the US strategic uh, guarantee and that... Uh, uh, Actually, there's almost been a sort of um, rededication towards NATO, partly in order to uh, placate, placate Trump and at least pretend that we're going to increase our defence spending in the right sort of way. But secondly, also as a piece of um, deliberate self-reassurance, I would almost say self-deception, that having looked over the cliff of what life might be like if the Americans really did disengage, that uh, in most European capitals, except for Paris, we've decided that actually we just love the way it's worked for 70 years and we're more and more keen to ensure that that's the way it carries on working, where we don't have to do too much thinking for ourselves and um, we're part of the NATO alliance and America calls the shots. So, Jeremy, you've been... Uh, we talked on the podcast before about the, the what you call the Regency effect, which is this... Yeah. A, a modern name for this self-delusion, or maybe an old-fashioned name, an old given it goes back to the 18th century. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I observe the same thing that, that Nick does. It's really quite intriguing. I mean, you hear all of these calls for strategic autonomy. Uh, you hear them on the European level. You hear them, you know, individually from European leaders all the time, acknowledgments from not just in France, but from people like Merkel, and it was very prominent in the German election that uh, that the United States is moving in a certain direction, uh, and that yeah, it has a lot to do with Trump, but it also is frankly started under Obama, and it uh, and and maybe earlier than that, and that there is in the movement of American policy a need for Europe to be able to have strategic autonomy. And yet at the same time, you see in these papers very clearly, again, to, to a degree with the exception of the French one, um, uh, a sense that that just can't happen, uh, that, uh, that they're not ready for that, that they have to, that they're not willing to give up on the, uh, on the Americans because they don't really feel as if there is an alternative, that there, uh, this idea, which uh, I think European politicians are willing to pay lip service to, of strategic autonomy and of a more European force. Uh, outside of France, there really is no faith in it. But even uh, in France, it was very interesting when um, the chemical weapons attack in Syria happened, watching the dynamics of people in Paris and London waiting for Trump to make up his mind before... Yeah, well, well look, I mean, we've got to be a little bit fair to them. I mean, I think that the, the state of the world is as it is, and they're working with their allies and I think, a way which is which is reasonable, but you at least see in the French documents and in the French uh, uh, budget even, to, to echo Nick, uh, an effort to create a, a capability and an effort to create an ideology which would allow a degree of autonomy and independence. I think there's a lot of work to do on that, of course, uh, in the French case and in other cases. But 
Um, what's, I think what's interesting is that you don't even see that in the other cases. What you see is a, is a defense document which has a, almost a nostalgia for uh, a NATO and a United States, which their own political sense tells them will not exist in the decades to come. I, I want to disagree somewhat, though. I mean, what? Shocking, I know. How dare I? Um, I mean, obviously, all these countries want to keep the U.S. on board. There's no question about it. No one wants to do this alone. Nevertheless, I don't feel, in my conversations and meetings and, and all of that, I don't feel that the focus is so much NATO beyond the fact that, you know, they want to keep NATO and try to, to keep the U.S. happy. But still, it seems that most things are moving and happening on, on the kind of European defense level. We've had PESCO, and I've discussed this on this podcast series, um, uh, several times, and of course that's not I'm not the sure of, that the, the conclusion really. of the PESCO podcast was that it was a big step forward. No, 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 that's not what, I, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not <laughs> the, saying PESCO... The instant gorilla. Yeah. <laughs> your exactly. I, I, talked, I talked about PESCO as yeah. the impotent gorilla. That image I'm, still haunts my mind. <laughs> No, no, I agree that obviously PESCO isn't the answer to NATO. That would be a bad situation. What I mean is that it seems to me that the momentum, at least in the rhetoric, but also in terms of you know things that are being done, is more on the kind of EU defense, European defense side. We just talked about the European Intervention Initiative. And I mean, PESCO did happen, as impotent as it may be. So I'm, I'm, I'm just thinking that, that the, the papers we're looking at may be emphasizing this more um, isn't surprising in so far as for many of these countries these papers are kind of designed to be mostly backward looking I mean I don't really know about how, how all of these countries Look, do that but I know that the German one is specifically, I, um, specifically looking backward I mean, I every see, single time I see, all the, I see the currents that you're talking about yeah. I see that there is, there is first of all a recognition of this problem in a lot of countries, and there are these efforts, particularly at the European level, I think a lot of them, frankly, emanating from France, but, but I take your point that there are others who at least see this need. But uh, I, what, what I detect, and we did this transatlantic uh, power audit uh, mm-hmm. this past fall, is that um, when you really ask these people, you know, what do they, where do they think it's going, what do they, how do they want it to go, they don't trust in the capacity of either Europe or France, God forbid France, um, to create, uh, or Germany for that matter, to, to create the kind of capability uh, that they need. They're willing to, to play those sort of games about PESCO, but they become very cynical about the, about the results. And I think that the, the impotent gorilla is an example. I mean, what you saw, what you saw was an, an idea which, which started with a sense of creating capability, mm. uh, in that sense a French idea about creating capability, that was at a certain point, no one can quite, um, not one can quite pinpoint when, transformed into an idea to create yet another European defense initiative, yet another institution that would be a, a servant of European integration rather than a servant of, of uh, greater defense capability. And so at the end of the day, there isn't one doesn't get the sense that there is going to be greater defense capability coming out of uh, the PESCO initiative. And if I could just add to that, I mean, I think that part of what's going on with all the last 18 months, all the European defense, all the progress we're making, which we've celebrated as historic, a lot of it's been to do with, as you say, using defense as a sort of proxy for general European integration. Mm. Um, And a lot of it's been about the defense industry. Yes. Um, It's been about... uh, 
uh, hard commercial interests, which is what the European Defence Fund is all about. It's trying to bolster European defence capability, which, of course, is useful in terms of strategic autonomy, but is primarily about money-making and um, ensuring the strength of European defence companies. Uh, yes. Um, and yet, coming back to Germany, I mean, what is Germany doing uh, with its force structures? What it's doing is the Framework Nation Initiative, which is um, essentially about binding together the militaries of Central Europe in a way which is, I think, probably adding value to NATO, taking a lot of rather small and inept militaries, making them work together better, creating more cohesive force. But precisely because it's a whole bunch of um, militaries roped together, these framework nation uh, enterprises are not going anywhere. This is not remotely expeditionary. This doesn't, doesn't, can't possibly be useful in, in other axes of, other than creating forces in place in Central and Eastern Europe, which will have its virtue for NATO, but uh, is not in any sense a, a contribution, I don't think, to strategic autonomy. Can I maybe question this whole idea, how we think about strategic autonomy? Because in a way, you know, what we've been talking about... Um, is very a lot of sort of yesterday's agenda. Um, one of the things which does come out of these documents is about the new types of threats, cyber, hybrid stuff, a lot of things which are um, uh, an intermingling of domestic and foreign policy. <clears throat> um, and a lot of them are in areas where European interests are quite different from American interests, and Europe has greater capabilities and is less kind of dependent on, on the US. Um, and yet there doesn't seem to be much of a thought about what strategic autonomy means like, but it might be that the whole way that we think about the internet and the regulation of the internet and how we deal with big companies like the Facebooks and Googles of the world might be part of that. And then the other kind of way, um, which we haven't talked about so much, is that there is now <clears throat> a growing uncoupling of how America's defining its foreign policy interests in a lot of regions from the way that the, the EU is. Uh, in the Middle East, it's pretty dramatic, this uncoupling with the US, you know, opening an embassy in Jerusalem to the horror of, of, of most Europeans who still believe in a two-state solution, um, threatening the, the Iran nuclear deal. We've just done a podcast on, on, on the future of the JCPOA and, and different ways in which Trump and his team are going to try and destroy that over the next periods, uh, the next few months, whether um, uh, formally doing it or de facto destroying it. Um, you know, the the whole anti-Iran axis which um, the US is forming with Israel and Saudi Arabia also is slightly different from what Europeans are trying to do in that part of the world. And their concern about um, refugee flows out of the region, not very great. <laughs> compared to, to, to... I mean, shouldn't those things feed into to, uh, discussions about strategic autonomy as well? Uh, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to put it succinctly, I think that um, it, there, there is a lot of... I, I agree with you about some of this decoupling, but I think from a, the, one of the things that we discovered in our, in our uh, audit of how these countries feel about the U.S. is that all of them, including France, uh, feels that the U.S. is their most important um, geopolitical ally and that, uh, and that they need the United States um, for their most important strategic problems. Uh, they, they vary in their strategic problems. In the East, it's Russia. In the South, it's, 
its uh, terrorism and migration, but they all feel as if the U.S. is their most important strategic partner. I, I think that they're, they're, they're right for the time being, at least, because they, there is no greater European defense capability to rely on, and by and large, they don't believe uh, that it's going to come. So it's a lot to ask them to look at the degree of decoupling that's happened and say, well, you know, you need to, you, what you should be doing is investing in, in European stuff because it's not something that they believe in. It's not something that they can believe will actually solve their European problem. And, and you know, I, my perspective is, is a little bit different that the, the incentive for um, greater European autonomy doesn't need to come precisely from a sense that uh, the United States is decoupling, uh, even though I think there is a, that, that is true to a, to a significant degree, it, it needs to come from a sense that, that you won't really get an effective alliance with the United States unless you have a sufficient degree of strategic autonomy to present them with a capability that they find interesting, uh, that, they need to, that they need to think about your requirements, your interests, when they're attempting to use it. Uh, and so right now, for example, um, you know, the United States is thinking about how to confront Iran. They're thinking about whether to get rid of the Iran nuclear deal. And they're not really all that interested in what the Europeans think about it because under any circumstances, the Europeans don't have that much to lend to the problem. Whereas if they had both positive and negative incentives to give the Americans, which would come from greater autonomy, the Americans would be more interested in their opinion, and I would argue, although this would, this would create some arguments in the, in the alliance, the alliance would ultimately be stronger because it would be more balanced, because the, both sides would be forced to take each other into account, uh, and they would ultimately, because I think they're fundamentally uh, close geopolitical allies, they would ultimately find agreements. Hmm. You know who has been really good at showing the US that they have capabilities? It's France. I think they have done an amazing job in recent months, really, um, uh, showing, showing the US that, that they can do things, be it in Mali or, or now in Syria. I mean, whether, whether or not all of that is true is another question, but I, my, my impression very much was that in the US, the view is now that, well, the French actually have some, some capabilities, contrary, of course, to, to Germany and to some extent the UK. I think I mean, that's right, yeah. And I think that to the extent that you can show the US that you have capabilities, then you can make that alliance better, stronger, and work better in your interests. But that, in a way, is what the European... I mean, we should maybe spend a minute or two, because we've mentioned it quite a lot of times, but m maybe Rika or Nick, um, you might want to explain what, what it really is, this, this famous E2I, as it's called, the European Intervention Initiative. I think Nick has just thought a lot about this and may or may not write a paper about it, so go ahead. <laughs> Well, I, I don't think there's very much to it at all at the moment. I mean, this is something, a, a splendid idea, tossed out by Macron during his wonderful Sorbonne speech when he tossed out, in very French fashion, mobilising ideas across the whole range of Europe's business and future. And as you mentioned, Mark, uh, what it seems to amount to is an idea of um, almost like a military Erasmus. I mean, his, his notion seems to be that... Um, in particular, the French are always very keen on horizon scanning, on actually paying a lot of intelligence, uh, paying a lot of attention to intelligence, to anticipating when the next crisis is going to bubble up, to considering uh, 
what the future is going to throw at you in defence and security terms and from making appropriate plans to meet them. This is all good stuff. And the Macron idea seems to be to invite a lot of exchange officers in from around, uh, around Europe to sit with the French and see how they do it and um, develop this habit. And uh, more ambitiously, in a way, it's tied to this idea of, in this fashion, creating a, a more common strategic culture. Well, it'll be a small contribution to that, no doubt. Um, uh, I mean, I think his instincts are right that a lot of strategic culture is, is going to come together not from grand pronouncements and white papers driven from on top, but from simply the interaction of individuals on the ground. And that can be in many ways. It could be industries working together on building a new fighter aircraft, or it could be staff officers coming together to think about the threats of the future. It could be um, exchange squadrons learning how to interoperate with each other and preserving some of the lessons of Afghanistan, which were improved European interoperability quite a bit in various ways. Um, so at the moment it's, it seems to me an ambitious idea but um, with, a, with very little content to it. But I mean that, that's, that's a start, right? I sure. mean if you want to create a strategic culture, a common strategic culture, you should do it by action rather than paper and I'm not sure whether you, know, you can create this common strategic culture outside of actually fighting a war together, which I hope we're not going to do anytime soon. But, you know, if, if you can do that, then, then that's probably one way. So. Well, I think it might be worth ending the podcast by reflecting a bit on, on what you can do with papers, because uh, there have been a lot of them. Um, we've done reports on papers uh, at various different points. Um, and um, <clears throat> it's certainly something which um, has been at the heart of what uh, the High Representative Federica Mogherini has been uh, focusing on the production of all of these different papers and processes. Um, do we do we think that they're a, uh, a kind of significant way of trying to build a culture, of trying to create debates, of trying to to bring people from different backgrounds behind a common vision? Do they shape either where money and resources get spent or how people act when a crisis erupts? I don't think that papers do, but uh, I guess I think that if you if you create the, I'm never interested in the results of these uh, strategic reviews, <laughs> but I am interested in the reviews themselves. I am interested in the process, and I think that the what the process can do if it is run correctly is it can help the all of the participants understand what the differences are, what the distinctions are. What the, what the disagreements are, what the limits of what you're willing to accept are. And then you write a paper which is basically papers over all that stuff by, by putting in language which is vague and doesn't really mean that much. Um, but actually, the, if, you, if you organize the process, and I think that this, this works with the, with the E2I initiative, the Erasmus part of the E2I initiative that Nick laid out, if you organize the process in such a way that people really have to engage each other with what the different cultural problem, what the different problems are. I think you can actually surface some of the issues. Uh, I'm not sure that particularly in the European strategies they usually do that because they have a different perspective as to what these papers are. They think the papers are are the, are the point that there is a result that it's going to guide it. That when once you have the paper, people will read it and understand what your strategic guidance is, and so they tend to be very technocratic processes, and I see them 
when they're do, done well as political processes that try to understand uh, the disputes and point the way not toward the solution but toward the process of the solution. And I'm, I am a bit worried that they're not, they're not doing that here and that they're, um, that they're essentially creating documents which, which no one will read and which uh, don't really attempt to create a process through which people can understand their distinct strategic cultures. I, I I don't I don't know I mean, I, will, I don't think I'm that cynical yet about the paper themselves um, because my impression has been and again I'm mainly speaking about Germany but also others then that these publications are at least useful from a national level because you can see changes over time you can see different directions and goals and aims and means so I, I think that that's still a useful thing to do and of course the process of writing these papers is also important but the paper itself I think can can help you I would say that the problem is more that all of these countries are still approaching this from a very national point of view and I think what's missing is this is basically a European consultation process while while uh, coming up with them. So, okay, let's focus on the process, but how about we try to get more European voices in them when you write them, and then we could possibly have a, a, a common approach, at least, even though you know the countries won't exactly say yeah, the same I think, thing. Yeah, I, I think that's to, to a degree what I meant, is okay. that uh, particularly at the European level, it's been seen as too much of a technocratic problem. But I think that there's a... There's a further issue as to why this doesn't happen, and I think we have to we have to confront it. There, there's an idea here that strategic culture re, can be created with effective communication, mm. uh, and it seems to me that strategic culture derives from your strategic problems uh, over time. That you have a problem that you need to solve uh, as a as a polity, and that you uh, and that the culture over time grows up around the solution to that problem. Which is why you see countries that uh, that have have problems that need to be solved with offensive doctrines tend to have offensive cultures and vice versa. And what what's going on right now is that the countries of Europe have different strategic problems, conceive of themselves as having different strategic problems, see their problems distinctly, and have and each have their own culture, which makes sense for their particular strategic problem. I would make the case that their strategic cultures will not be unified. Unless they, um, unless they're able to redefine their sense of a polity as something that has the same strategic problem, and I haven't seen any effort to do that, or at least to have uh, a real trade-off where you're kind of self-consciously addressing different problems, and yeah. that's one of the things that we're yeah, that's be another problem possibility. Looking at over the next few months, we're actually doing a scorecard looking at the threat perceptions in all the different countries. But I think maybe one other um, idea behind these doctri- doctrines. Is kind of very explicitly mentioned in the in the British National uh, Capabilities Review, which is also the fact that with this new generation of problems like terrorism and cyber and other things, it, you know, the problems aren't just between countries and it's within countries. So the whole fusion doctrine is designed to try and get you know different agencies to work together who have no tradition of talking to each other within the UK which is maybe sometimes even a bigger problem than getting, you know, British and French militaries work together pretty well, but how well does the Home Office work with, um, you know, well, even different police forces don't always work together that well <laughs> in this country. So there's a, a poignant line uh, in the Prime Minister's uh, forward where she says that every part of our government and every one of our agencies has its part to, to play. Oh, maybe... 
then we have 27 um, uh, mm. different, from mm. 27 member states, the Home offices and all the different ministries sitting together. It's going to be a large discussion group. Maybe there's one other thing which, which has sort of been um, floating in the background, and maybe we should just talk about that for a second but as, we, as our time draws to a close, which is you just talked about 27 member states, which is where we're, <laughs> we're heading, but there's still 28 member states in the, in the EU. Um, one of the ideas behind the European uh, E2I, the European Intervention Initiative, is a way of engaging the UK post-Brexit. I mean, how, how does, uh, you know, Nick, maybe you could end by talking about Brexit in this context. Is this the idea of a strategic culture maybe a way of, of trying to bind uh, countries together, even if they create institutional distance between themselves? Well, I think the uh, French certainly believe that they share common strategic culture with the Brits and the Brits even in their most anti-European moods uh, tend to excuse the French from their general view that Europeans are useless on defence but they they grudgingly allow that the French are are not bad and are worthy partners. So um, yes, I think the E2I probably has got this dimension of wanting to look to keep the the British engaged in uh, European defence um, and I think it'll be important because the, all the signs are that uh, the progress of the defence and security chapters of the Brexit negotiation is no better than on trade, on economics or anything else, and that the Brits are going to find that they have what they regard as a very unsatisfactory third-party relationship with the EU27, and there will be a risk of um, uh, Britain ending us uh, drifting off into the uh, northeast Atlantic. Um, Paris, I think, will want to avoid that. And why not? Because it has a good, strong Lancaster House bilateral defence relationship with the Brits. And if I were in France, I would be thinking, ah, well, I will end up as the bridge between Britain and the rest of Europe. And um, in the way in in which the French have already largely displaced the Brits as the bridge to Washington. I mean, I think think France is calculating that it is going to become absolutely the strategic crossroads of Europe. And, um, you know, why not? Yeah, I I, I agree, definitely. Okay, well, we're ending on a rare moment of agreement. Let's not lose it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah. We have one more thing to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Obviously, my bookshelf is groaning under the weight of all of these different strategic defence reviews from from different countries, the Dutch, the Brits, the Spanish, the European Global Strategy, um, and the other ones that we've mentioned. Um, uh, Nick, what's on your bookshelf? Glass, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as always, I have at least one science fiction book to recommend. Um, I do feel that we should all read more science fiction and things that have nothing to do with the kind of things we're working on, even though they may have to do with the kind of things I'm that working on. That sounds like exactly what you work on. Sorry, <laughs> yes, but they're more fun to read than, you know, white papers. So I want to um, recommend a book called Hologrammatica by Tom Hillebrand, um, who's a German science fiction author. There are very few of those around, and most of them aren't that good, but he's very good. It's a very interesting um, uh, science fiction book that partly takes place in London. So for anyone who can read German, go ahead and read Hologrammatica. Jeremy, what's on your bookshelf? Uh, I've just read um, Notes on a Foreign Country, uh, an American Abroad in a Post-American World. This was recommended to me by uh, our Turkey fellow, Asla Intashbash, and it's, uh, it's um, written by a friend of hers, uh, Susie Hansen, who 
who is an American who's been living in Turkey for, well, I guess for 11 years at the time she wrote the book, um, which was a, a year or two ago. Um, and she talks about how her view of uh, the United States and how her view of American power particularly changed from her experience of living abroad, which I thought maybe would be uh, informative to me. It turns out I, I more or less had her view of American power when I left. Um, <laughs> and I, I have to say, um, even though I really love the idea of the book and I love the book in parts, I did find it at times a little bit frustrating. It sort of struck me as, a, as someone, uh, uh, a naive American goes abroad with naive uh, pro-American views and returns with naive anti-American views. Um, <laughs> I hope more, more realistic views now. Uh, and so I, I felt like actually both, both things, with the place where she started and the place where she ended up, were sort of caricatures. Uh, very, very different caricatures, so she took quite a journey, uh, and it's fascinating to understand it. Um, but I actually think that what she misses is that uh, American power is not either a force for good or a force for evil. It's just a force of state power, like all other state powers, uh, and that it has its aspects which are uh, incredibly uh, self-interested, and it has its aspects which are, uh, which are not. Um, but That's that such an Obamian end to this podcast because there wasn't Obama asked whether America was an exceptional yeah. country he says yeah we're an exceptional country just like every other country in the world is yeah exceptional. I think he's absolutely right about that <laughs> I don't think of you as proved wrong by the fact that Obama held it um, <laughs> <laughs> in this age I thought I thought I thought that was the definition of being wrong in, in Trump in America <laughs> Uh, no, I think I think there's quite a bit of wisdom in uh, in uh, the Obama presidency, but it's probably going to take us a few years to rediscover it. Okay, great. Well, it's been a, another uh, fun discussion. Um, I'm definitely uh, at least as confused as most European security establishments are at the end of that discussion. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please let your friends and acquaintances know about us by. Um, tweeting about the podcast, writing about it on your Facebook page or ours, but above all, rushing straight to the ratings and review page on the platform that you're using to listen to this podcast and giving us a review because that really helps bring other people towards us. Please do write us if you've got any comments on the podcast or ideas for future themes. My uh, address is mark.leonard at ecfr.eu. We will post links to all the publications we mentioned on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Nick Whitney, Ulrika Franke, Jeremy Shapiro, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of our podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, and our editor is Katharina Botel-Atinado. Bye.